Who would like to open this for prayer this week? Mitch. I heard that you wanted to open this in prayer this morning. That would be awesome. <laughs> Let's go ahead and uh, we can get we can get Bob to sit down. So so Mitch is going to open us in prayer. Bob will be quiet for a second. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> didn't finish the conversation later. go for uh, for our opener this morning to Psalm 37. And as you can see, this is a long psalm. 40 verses. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Who knows, this might have been David's graduation psalm. We've been talking about David being in God's character university. Um, this is a psalm of David. It's about trust and uh, the contrasting of two ways. Um, Who would like to read it for us? It's a long psalm, so you've got to be a strong reader. Anybody want to take a shot at it? Go for it.
They will be protected forever. But the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of his God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. But the Lord will not leave them in their power, or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them, because they take refuge in him. Very good. Amen. Very good. David's graduation psalm. So we've been uh, studying about the character formation of David. And uh, in many uh, respects, Saul has been a foil to David as we go through this character development in the narrative. Um, we're about ready uh, to see the uh, promotion of David and uh, the full uh, disqualification of Saul. And we're going to take a look at that this morning in chapter 28 of First Samuel, if you want to turn there. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I'll again ask the question, especially after reading the, the 37th Psalm, what has David learned? If you could sum it up in a sentence or two, what would you say? What has David learned? He's learned trust in the Lord. He's learned confidence in God. What else has he learned? definitely learned a contentment and that contentment comes through drawing near to the will of the Lord to being a man after God's heart and um, we often ask the question what does that mean to be a person after God's heart um, and to draw into the will of God and to understand wisdom because we, we talk a lot about wisdom and that is going to come up as we move through from this point forward um, so he definitely learned a contentment that comes from aligning his heart with the Lord's heart. And in that, God actually gives him, it says, the desires of his heart. And I, I would like to qualify that, not expand on it, but I'll qualify it. Um, when the Lord gives us the desires of our heart, that doesn't mean that we get a Mercedes, if that's the <laughs> thing that you lusted after, or uh, you know, the palatial estate. What it means is that the desires that you have that are good and righteous are those same desires that God has, and he puts those in you. You become more like him. And that's what our task is as disciples, is to learn from our king and become like him and to serve him as he serves. Right. So there's a contentment in that, and David has learned that contentment. What else has David learned? So we've got trust, we've got a contentment or drawing out of the Lord's heart. learned that God has a time that isn't his time because 
if David was God, he would probably do things differently. And we are thankful that he wasn't God. Um, and he's learned that that is good. That uh, God has a time and that he will bring about his plan in his time. There's another thing that David learned that probably doesn't jump out off the page to you from uh, the 37th Psalm, but we certainly see as we move through the stories of David, is that in addition to learning about his own selfishness and where his heart was not after God's heart and had the opportunity to repent and join God in God's mission, he also learned God's uh, uh, patience from God, that, that God has his timing, but he also learned that there's a time to act. So in addition to recognizing that we have to wait on God, he didn't always pull back. There were times when he saw uh, the need of the people or the need of his men, and he sought the Lord, and then he used everything available to him about how he learned to lean into God and to hear God's voice and discern God's will, and then he recognized the time for action. And we're going to see that in the following chapter. As I, I would say that David has come full circle at this point, and we're going to see that circle come to a close this morning as we look at Saul, but you're going to see that David actually knows I need to wait on the Lord, and he also knows that there are times when the Lord uses him as he's been designed and he needs to take action. And, uh, and we need to recognize that, that we're not always to sit back and wait, that we're also at times called to step forward. And that's what we're going to see, and very briefly, I mean, there's a lot of lessons that we've learned as we've culled through here. Um, but at a very high level, that's what we, some of the things we've learned. Let's go ahead and read through uh, chapter 28. Because, as you recall, let me grab my pointer here. David has been uh, on the run for many years and uh, about 14 years and I'm going to zoom out to a larger picture of Israel here. And, did you get a new map? Uh, no, what I did is I changed the, the contrast on it rather than yeah, using the Landsat. It's very three-dimensional. Yeah, this shows the shadows much better. And so That's I good. intentionally I figured out how to turn it on. And, um, but he's been down here in the, in the south. Well, and I know you can't read these little dots in the micro writing, but uh, this area in here is the Benjamin Plateau, which we've talked about. That's Saul's stomping grounds. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the, the area of the Philistines down here. Um, David uh, was hanging out here in the south until he couldn't find any uh, relief from Saul. Saul kept sending armies down to to find him, and, and David had opportunities to kill Saul, but he always was waiting on the Lord. Um, and sometimes those were rough lessons. Uh, but he was down here, he couldn't find any relief, so he went and joined up with the Philistines. He made himself a servant of the king of Gath, which is where Goliath was from, a king named Akish. He's right here. Well, the next part of our story is going to move from this coastal plain of the Philistines up to the Jezreel Valley. And this is the Jezreel Valley. So this area right here, this is Mount Carmel, and this is the main food production area of Israel. Um, Galilee is just to the north. This is the Sea of Galilee. Um, the Jordan River runs down through here in the Rift Valley. There's a very uh, steep descent from this uh, uh, area up here down to the lower areas where the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on Earth, so it's a pretty good drop. Right in here is where our next... Uh, area of activity is going to come. But before I zoom in, let's just go ahead and read the first two verses here. It says, Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard 
for life. Now, <clears throat> this word bodyguard is, uh, is actually uh, two words in Hebrew. It's translated into uh, the English as bodyguard or someone that looks after you, right? But it actually means the keeper of my head. So there's some irony in this, that Achish, who is the king of Gath, makes David the keeper of his head. David took the head of Goliath, who was from Gath. And so you see a complete reversal over the years uh, in what, how God is using this situation. Even uh, an alliance with the enemy, the king of uh, the Philistines, or the king of Gath, and David becomes the keeper of his head. Well, there's a lot more in these two verses, but what you see is, is that David is down here um, with the king, and the king says, we're about ready to muster our armies, me and the other four kings, and we're going to march north, and we're going to cut through this valley right here. And I'll zoom in a little bit. Um, there are three areas that you can naturally come into this Jezreel Valley. One of them is just here near uh, Mount Carmel, at the base of Mount Carmel. One of them is uh, right through here, and it comes out near Megiddo, which is right here. And then the other one uh, comes up through here, and it's actually more accessible through the Patriarchal Highway. And uh, it dumps out uh, near Mount Gilboa and an area where uh, today is uh, modern-day Janine. So this is all Palestinian territory today. Um, so there's three entrances, and he's saying, well, I'm going to muster, we're going to muster our armies, me and the other four kings, and we're going to march up, and we're going to come out through um, this cut that goes through by Megiddo, and then they come across to this mountain called Shunem. And I'm going to zoom in a little bit more so you can maybe... Is that the plains of Megiddo for Revelation? Yes. So... The, the valley, the Jezreel Valley, this immediate area right here near Megiddo is sometimes called the Valley of Megiddo because this was the primary entrance into the Jezreel Valley. It's much easier and more accessible than going the mountainous route near Mount Carmel or the mountainous route that dumps out here near Dothan and, and, uh, and the Patriarchal Highway. Yes? So, so Dave, uh, the, the Philistines were actually down lower the yeah. And this is an attack that they're making into the territory of Israel. Yes. So, I mean, they didn't control that territory all the way up there, did they? Uh, they wanted to. And the reason why is because the tribe of Ephraim, you can see Ephraim's name here, in this hill country actually controlled that area, which was very fertile. Now, the Philistines, they're lowland folk, right? But they have iron instruments tools for farming and stuff like that. So the reason they took over the coastal plain was because it was very fruitful. And if I was wanting to expand my empire, I'd want to uh, expand in areas of my strength. And then from there, build strongholds to defend it. And there's natural strongholds to defend it. Megiddo is one of them. There's a natural stronghold to defend access to that valley. Um, and then over here in the north, you also have a natural path that comes down around Mount Shunem into the valley, so that's where they placed their armies. They cut off the northern route so that Israel couldn't bring in additional troops from the north, and they had come through the southern route so that Israel wasn't going to bring their troops through there, so they had to take the Patriarchal Highway. Just a quick aside, though. Uh, so Jesus uh, went all the time from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Yep. So he would have taken the Patriarchal Highway? Well, no, because in the time of Jesus, this area that is now Ephraim uh, became um, um, the Samaritan region. So what happened is when Assyria came in and conquered in 720, they came in from the north, from Damascus. They came down and they conquered this whole area, all the way down. And if you recall um, in Isaiah, and you can also read about it in the Kings, um, they came all the way up to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was king at that time. So what the, uh, this is uh, an aside, but it's, it's important to understand the different contexts. Um, so the Assyrians came down, took the north, came all the way down to the coastal plain, took the armed cities, or the walled cities, 
along here, and then they pushed up into the hill country, because you don't want to take your army into the hills until you've secured everything around it. And Jerusalem is in a very rugged area, so they pushed up and came within uh, the outer reaches of Jerusalem, and that's when God stopped them in a night. Hezekiah called out in prayer, and that's why Hezekiah was a king of faith, right? When, and he's, he's known for that. Uh, as you look through the different kings and what they're known for, he was one of great faith. And so, and trust in the Lord. But that's where that occurred. So Jesus, when he would have been coming down from Galilee, so we were looking at, uh, I'm going to zoom in a little bit because, um, so Jesus, up here in Galilee, you'll notice there's a ridge here to the north. Okay, so this is the Jezreel Valley right in here. You see uh, Shunem, Mount Gilboa, which we're going to talk more about, Mount Tabor. This area right in here, this ridge, is um, the uh, Nazareth Ridge, for lack of a better word. There's a more technical term for it. But Jesus would have been able to sit up at the top of this ridge and look down into the Jezreel Valley, and he would have seen all of this history that is recorded in Scripture up through his day. A lot of it took place right here. Or it took place in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is on the edge of the Benjamin Plateau. So when Jesus would have been going for the feasts from Nazareth, what he would have done is he would have come down here into the Jezreel Valley, and there's a river here called the Herod River. Zoom in a little bit more. Um, So hopefully this is now jumping off the page for you. Um, He would have come down from Nazareth, and he may have gone around Mount Tabor, uh, and come down this way, but that was a, a still a pretty rugged route. This is a very steep valley in here. So most likely he would have come down uh, either this way into the Jezreel Valley or this way around Mount Shunem into the Jezreel Valley. And there's a river here that runs uh, by Bekshan and then joins up with the Jordan River. And this became the main route through that area. So Jesus, rather than taking the Patriarchal Highway, heading through the Jezreel Valley under the Patriarchal Highway, he would have avoided um, the area of the Samaritans uh, and would have come down here through Bashan and headed south along the Jordan River. And that's why when you read a lot of the accounts of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, it was through Jericho. Because he would take this route... Uh, around the area of the Samaritans, except on one occasion, which is really interesting, that we read about in John 4. Yep. And there he goes right into the heart of Samaria and uh, to the very place of worship, right? Mount Ebal and uh, Mount Gerizim. And it's there that he meets the woman at the well, which is a historical place also in the, the Jewish tradition. And uh, he witnesses to the Samaritans and brings many of them to the Lord. But anyway, he would have come down here to, near where Gilgal is, just a little bit south is Jericho, and he would have headed up then to Jerusalem. And that's the account, for example, of the, the Good Samaritan is a man that is accosted on the road to Jericho, between Jericho and, and Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus meets him, where he tells the story. Excuse me. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of context of where we're talking about. Does that answer your Question? I, I'm just marveling how awesome it is to hear from somebody who's been there and knows yeah. his stuff. Yeah. So I, I just yeah. want to thank you for that. Sure. Sorry. To no, that's, that's okay. Actually, I, I wanted to show you pictures but of Mount Gilboa, but we'll get there. Um, and probably not this morning, and that's okay. Um, I've got pictures both from Bashan looking at Mount Gilboa because when Saul was killed here, which we're going to read about, they actually took his body and hung it on the wall there in Bashan. And also have pictures of Mount Gilboa looking across the Shunem, so you can actually kind of see what's that area look like, you know, how far apart away. What, what would be the distance across that valley there? The distance from Mount Gilboa here, peak to peak to Shunem, is about 10 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a, it's a pretty good shout across. And from Shunem over to Megiddo is also about 10 miles. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so you, yeah, you could farm a lot of yeah. There's crops. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of crops in here. That's the breadbasket, yeah. uh, Jezreel Valley. But what happens is, is that David is with the king of the Philistines, and the king says, "Oh, by the way, we're going to go to war, and we're going to we're going to split Israel in half, 
and, uh, and we're going to completely conquer them. We're going to cut off the north, which is unorganized. We'll eventually take over them through a slow uh, assault, and we're going to cause the forces of the south in Ephraim to muster here, and we're going to wipe them out. And, oh, by the way, you're coming. <laughs> now, David at this point has been put out by Saul, right? And now he's being put in a position where he actually has to go against his own people. Now, up to this point, he's actually been defending his people um, and doing it uh, without the king of the Philistines knowing, right? And so now the king of the Philistines wants to put David up in front because he's gained confidence in David. Now, if you were David, how would you feel about the choices that you have in front of you? Not very good. could just be, and one of the choices you brought up, so he could just be a shrewd, shrewd politician, a shrewd warrior, where he's got his own plan to intercede on Saul's behalf or the people's behalf, and he's going to execute his plan. Um, even though he says one thing, yeah, I'm your man, I'll defend your head, really he's thinking forward to how he can take his head. Yeah. Uh, so that would be one choice, that maybe David is just a shrewd man. Um, or the other choice that you mentioned was is that he trusted in God and God's plan and God's timing and recognized that, gee, this doesn't make any sense to me. I'm pretty much in a box, but I trust that the Lord is going to make good on this. <clears throat> I mean, who knows? But the Lord might win the hearts of the Philistines. And that that was really the future of the peoples. David, standing there, didn't know. He had no visibility as to what the outcome was going to be. So he had a choice. Do I draw into the will of God and trust in God's timing? Or do I execute my own plan because I can't see what God's plan is? And so I, I think you've kind of characterized it. Those are the two tensions. Now I would suggest to you uh, the one where David is trusting in God's timing. God's will. And I, I say that because of what we've seen in David over this period of time. So when he makes this statement, very well, you shall know what your servant can do, um, it's politically shrewd, and he doesn't say, yeah, give me the chance, I'll take Saul's head. He doesn't say something foolish like that. He says, I will show you how I've been made. So he's making a statement of truth about how God has formed him up to that point in time. And uh, in that, Akish is welcome to interpret it however he chooses. So that's the political astuteness. And Akish says, well, you know, I've been really happy with you. You can be my bodyguard. Now David doesn't know. God hasn't put him in this position for just this time. And that it will be revealed to him what he's supposed to do. Whether he's supposed to fight, whether he's supposed to defend, what is he supposed to do? He doesn't know, but he trusts the Lord. So, well, what's the ramifications of him being the bodyguard? He's only next to the king. Yep. In other words, in the battle, when uh, the Hebrews are coming against uh, the king, and the, you know the forces have failed and they're breaking through the lines, he is the last line of defense to the king. He is to defend him at all costs, including his life. So he is uh, the keeper of the king's head. And that's, that's a very significant position. It's an honor for David to be there. It's also like the Secret Service guys that are supposed to take a bullet for the president. But he's not going to be sent out no. to generalize something. He's no. He'll be kept close. He'll be kept close. And in fact, you see that in, uh, in the chapters that, or the story as it unfolds, that he actually is close to King Akish, him and his men. And the kings always went in the back because they were kings of the Gentiles, not king of God, and so you'll see David's trailing in the back, and 
uh, what happens is, is the other four kings say, hey, isn't this the guy that they said, you know, Saul kills his thousands, but David kills ten thousands, tens of thousands? You want to put him on the front line? And so it gets questioned, right? But Akish likes him. So now at this point, the whole story shifts from David to Saul. And what we're going to see as we move through, and I'm going to go ahead and read through it, um, and then we'll come back and comment on that. Um, you're going to see the disqualification of Saul. So at this point, David's learned uh, about his selfishness and repentance in that, about waiting on the Lord, and about taking action on behalf of God's people as directed by the Lord. Okay, let's take a look at Saul. Now Samuel was dead, so this is giving us some historical context to the story. And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now you recall we read about that before. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So one of the things that was in the Deuteronomic law was that um, they weren't supposed to have magicians or uh, necromancers or spiritualists in the land, that that was part of the Canaanite culture that they were supposed to destroy. And so they were specifically commanded by God. Samuel told that to Saul, and it says here that Saul actually participated in that. He had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. So... Uh, that's where I was out here. We've got they they came across through this uh, uh, Jezreel Valley and were camped up against the mountain of Shunem. <clears throat> and it says, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. So they came up through the patriarchal highway, jumped down into the valley. There's all the Philistines. Here's all the Israelites. Any idea? Um, well, if you had the, the five kings of the Philistines, it was a good number. It, you know, it's speculative on my part, and I would have to do a little bit of research around that. But more or less than the Israelites? More than the Israelites. Pardon? Right. And, and the, the joined to the Philistines, though, uh, it's probably in excess of 100,000, would be my guess. They brought a very formidable army, the Philistines did. And the Hebrews were, under Saul's um, rule, were very disjointed, right? So it was a very, um, they were emerging into a nation from uh, tribal um, economy, right? So they were early in the emergence as a nation. Saul was supposed to bring them forth as a nation, um, but he really didn't unify the people. He was so busy with David that uh, he didn't do what his job was. And so when he mustered the army, he certainly had his mighty men, but uh, it was nothing compared to the Philistines. So on the order of maybe 30,000 to 100,000, right? So a three-to-one advantage type deal with the Philistines. And when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly troubled, right? He, uh, so the, Saul's looking out and he's saying, I don't got enough men. I don't got enough tanks. I don't got enough bombs. Um, you know, everybody in their pitchfork isn't enough for these guys with their shields and their swords. So when Saul inquired, so Saul inquired of the Lord. Right? Sounds like a good plan. This Saul's known for this, right? He's scared. He's afraid. But he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. Surprise, surprise. And then we hear about how the Lord, he expected the Lord to answer, either by dreams by the Urim or the Thummim, or by the prophets, right? So didn't answer him through the priesthood and the method of authorized divination, or the prophets, or through dreams, like we would see that Joseph and Jacob and others had had. When Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to, uh, go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul's here, Mount Gilboa, looks across the valley, sees all those Philistines and all of their armament, and he says, whoa, I'm in trouble. Gets scared. Says, God, what is your plan? Not God, what is your will? Says, God, what is your plan? I want to know what the outcome is, what's going to happen next, so that I can work my plan in and survive this. And, uh, and he gets scared, so he ends up doing this end around to Endor. 
avoiding the, the Philistines, and he ends up right here at Endor where this verse is. <clears throat> then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. So he's not having any luck through the ways that the Lord has trained him to seek him. And so he says, well, let's go to this medium, bring up Samuel. But Samuel didn't like him. So, you know, why would he do that? Um, okay, he killed the priests. So he's probably, they're going to be more antagonistic against him than Samuel, right? Because he wiped out not just the priest of the time of Himelech, but he wiped out his whole family, right? Only one survived. Ironic that they swear by the Lord. It is. <laughs> now, yeah, Saul doesn't trust him, and all of a sudden yeah. they're saying, you know, we're swearing by the Lord that, that this is the truth. Well, and you're going to see Achish swear by the Lord too. The king of the Philistines, who's a, who's a heathen, right? And he's going to swear by the Lord too. And in many ways, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this is actually one of the things we're going to call out, is that um, by doing that, they're actually uh, invoking a form of magic. What is magic? And that's what we're going to see as we move through this account with the spiritualism, is that Saul is actually turning to magic. He wants to control what's going to go on. So he needs supernatural power. That's what magic is. You have the natural way that God has created things to work. And then we understand that God has the power, since he created it, to supernaturally or above nature intercede within the course of history and nature. That's God's domain. He created it. He sits above it. And we read about that in Isaiah. He sits above it. Um, And yet, he can become part of it. Now, man, if he wants to become God, wants to have the same kind of power. Right? Or anybody who wants to become God wants to have the same kind of power. Want to be above nature so that they can intercede to make their plan come about, to make their will happen. And what David has learned is that I'm going to choose the Lord's will, even if it leads me to my death. Because if that's what God's will for me is, and that's how the plan of God unfolds in my life, I will gladly lay down my life for my Lord. Saul, on the other hand, says, I'm not going to trust God for anything. I'm in control here. And if I can't control it, I'm going to find somebody who can teach me how to. I'm going to use magic. So it's a very stark contrast between these two. We've seen this development of David and his graduation from God's character university. Now you're seeing the full disqualification of Saul. He turns to the very thing that offends God in the highest, trying to take his job and control his destiny. And so we see that Um, he comes to this woman and he says, bring up Samuel. And at first the woman is reluctant because she knows what would happen. But she says, okay, that's fine. You know, I've been doing this. I know how to, how to give you the idea that I can control the the natural. And, uh, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. In other words, she didn't expect this. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So in that moment, God actually intervened and brought about a revelation for the woman. She all of a sudden had her eyes opened because she didn't expect that this magic would actually work. And it did, but it wasn't her magic. It was God bringing about a statement to Saul, as we read. He said to her, what is the form? So Saul couldn't see any of this. The woman said she saw a divine being coming out of the earth. And Saul says, what's the form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, 
for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Now, I'm going to stop there and pause for a moment. He wants to know what he should do. How many of us, when we seek the Lord, and we say, I'm seeking the Lord's will, actually say, I'm seeking the Lord to make my decision for me. I'm asking the Lord not to give me wisdom such that I can choose what is good and what is after his heart, but rather I want him to make my choice for me. Because I want to blame if it goes wrong on him and claim credit if it goes right on me. Right? So that's what he's asking. He's not asking to know God's will. He's asking to know God's plan so that he can figure out what he needs to do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So, what does Saul tell him when he says, I want to know what, the, what, what God has planned? What's the first thing that he tells him? That Samuel tells him. Uh, what Samuel tells Saul. Saul, Saul. Saul's asking, I want to know what God's plan is, and I want him to make my decision for me, the right decision, so that I live. And uh, what does Samuel tell him? That's the first thing he does. He says, don't you realize how ironic this is? It's like, why are you, why are you asking me? And then he, he says that, that that's not only ironic, but why are you asking me? Because God already told you. He told you in the very beginning. So now what you see is you see the full circle coming back. When did Saul get disqualified and David chose him? Right. Yep. That's right. He blames it on the people, and uh, and so what what happens here is that um, God recognized that Saul was only interested in building his own kingdom, even though he had. Um, chosen him or given him the delegated authority to serve as king and to provide, protect, and to serve the people. Saul was not doing that. He was not obeying. And in fact, Samuel said to Saul at the time that Saul was disqualified, he said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of is as the sin of divination. It's coming full circle here. I'm reading 1 Samuel chapter 15. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. He says, didn't God already tell you what the problem was? That's what Samuel says. And he reminds him says, you know, it was your disobedience, your rebellion, your continued sinfulness that has brought you to this day. And what you see is in the pattern of Saul, as he's presented as this foil against David, is this continuing pattern of disobedience, rebellion, and rejection of God. And only seeks God and only tries to appease David when it's in his interests. Right? When David has him by the ropes... And he says, why are you trying to kill me? When he knows that he could have been killed, he says, oh, my son David, you know, I love you, please come back. Right? And then he sets out to kill him again. Um, he's only doing what is to serve his own interests. 
The same thing is true when he seeks the Lord. And the Lord already quit listening to him because he knew what that heart was about. It wasn't about a heart after God. It was about a heart after Saul. Saul being the king. So we read on. I need to find my place again. Yeah, First Samuel, chapter 28. Uh, Samuel tell, tells him that he did not obey um, in executing, this is verse 18, chapter 28. Moreover, the Lord uh, will give over Israel uh, to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, you'll be dead. Indeed, the Lord will give over all of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. I would think so. Because he realizes, I can't get control no matter how hard I want to take it. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food at all day and night. Probably that was part of the ritual of necromancy. They would go into a trance and they would uh, fast beforehand. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words, which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. In other words, she's saying, I want you out of my house. I want you out now. I'm going to feed you so that you have the strength to get out the door. (laughs) Dave's paraphrase. Uh, But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it and took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and they arose and went away that night. So Saul, in confronted with this revelation from God, had a couple of choices. What were his choices? What were Saul's choices? You always have a choice. Regardless of what's going to happen is going to happen, you always have a choice. That doesn't mean that your choice is going to affect the outcome of what's going to happen, because that might be God's plan. You just give up. Pardon? That would have been one choice. Repentance would have been one choice. And that we know that a person can repent in the last days of their life is given to us by the worst king of all time in Israel. Right? He was actually a descendant of Hezekiah. And he reigned the longest, 56 years. And yet he repented in his final days. Even though what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, he repented. So that was one choice. Repentance. But it sounds like right here he's just giving up. That's another choice. He could say, well, I'm not going to let God take my life. I'll take my own life. That's a choice. That's what I'm saying. Even though you may not be able to affect the outcome of what God has ordained for the path of history, you still have a choice in every situation. So he could have repented and joined God and said, you know, I've sinned, but I want my heart different before you. I will lay down my life and defend your people. Repentance. He could have said, I'm going to take my life into my own hands and take it right now and deny you the opportunity to have the last laugh. You know, final form of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right? Or he could just watch it unfold. Not change his heart. Not try and take control, although we're going to see he does at the last minute. And, uh, and just let it occur. So that's basically the choice that he makes. Or he could have just gave up with the Philistines and said... Yeah, I could have gone to the Philistines and surrendered Israel. I mean, they were going to end up there anyway by God's declaration. It probably would have had the same result, though, Saul going against the, you know, giving up to the Philistines. They probably would have just chopped off his head. Yeah. In fact, they do.
I think you see those first two verses about David. He's put in a box. What do I do? I can't see what the outcome is. Um, he trusts the Lord. And then you see the story about Saul. He's put in a box. What's he going to do? And you see a completely different outcome. David, not knowing what God would have him do, uh, but he knows the promise of God. He's learned that God is good for his word. He knows what that word to him is, both as uh, a child of, of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and also as the uh, one chosen to lead God's people. And obviously this would be through a very difficult time. So when David comes to power, all of Israel's armies are defeated by the Philistines. That's, that's his, his entrance into office. Think about that, right? I mean, he's... You tell us the story ahead of time. Pardon? You tell us the story ahead of time. <laughs> well, I believe God's word is good. And Samuel said, guess what? Tomorrow, all of Israel is going to be delivered into the hands of the Philistines. All of the Israeli armies, the Hebrew peoples. So, I don't have to read ahead. I can trust God's word. Now, how many of you in your life have that same confidence? I don't have to read ahead. I have confidence in God. That's why I started out with the 37th Psalm. Because it's so much about the confidence of God and what is revealed today to face tomorrow. And he even says, you know, I'm, I'm going to stumble. And this is the whole point about David. He has to continually re relearn these lessons. He's stumbling, but he falls forward knowing that God will catch him and restore his foot on the path. It's exactly what it says in Psalm 37. That's who David was when he said, you know, I don't understand it, but... Now you'll get to see how God made me. That's what he says to the king, Akish. Can you just, uh, that um, God is about doing what he said he was going to do. He's told us that in his our will. lives. Pardon? God's, God's about doing his will. That's right. Okay. And we understand that his will has a couple of different aspects to it. There's what we call decree, that which God has commanded to occur in his creation. He's decreed it. And that is his, his uh, sovereign will many times is the way we view it. We are not the sovereign. He is the sovereign. He has decreed that that's the way it's going to be. And then there is his desire. Sometimes we call it permissive will. He desires us to choose the good and to shun the evil. And what you see is patterns of character as we look through the Bible 
of those that have chosen what is good, have chosen God and his desire, and have shunned evil, their own desire. And that's why, again, you see all of that in Psalm 37. That's why I say this is a graduation psalm. When David is put in the box, not knowing the outcome, he says, I choose God. Even though I don't understand it, he has made me for just such a time as this, and his revelation is sure. And Saul, like many of us, because there's a lot of Saul in me, when put in the box, I cry out to the Lord, and I say, fix it, according to my plan. And if you can't fix it according to my plan, at least, you know, don't, don't make me suffer. Right? Don't correct me. In other words, there's no repentance there. Um, and that's what you see in Saul. And what God wants us to understand is, if you're in the box, and everything is dark around you, as, as we read in Isaiah two weeks ago, don't try and make your own fires to light your world. It just doesn't work. Trust God. Even in a un, completely insane, unsolvable situation, God has a plan. And he has a plan for you in that situation. <clears throat> That's what it means to draw near to God's heart. To be a man after God's heart. To discern his will, his desire. That is the foundation of his decree. That we can live together with him. And because of the rebellion that is in us, we forfeited that. And that's what Christ came to bring to us was the ability to draw near draw near God to be a man after his heart truly and that's what we're seeing as we see Saul disqualified by trying to bring about his plan through supernatural and that supernatural magic can take the form of um, when we see it all the time in Christianity um, in the way that we expect God to act in prayer right we're commanding God to act on our behalf, not commanding God to act according to the good of His plan. Right? We do that. Um, I, you know, I could list off a whole bunch of ways. We don't need to beat ourselves up. We all do it. And what God says is that is like the sin of divination. Don't do that. That's magic. Don't do that. Turn to me. Draw near me. Because if you don't. The whole battle is lost. Chapter 28, 1 Samuel. I think we've seen a lot of leaders of the world, Hitler and uh, many of them, that yes. tried to go that way. Yep. Lost. And, and what I say, of what I'm learning about leadership is that we are leaders in place. Yeah. And that sometimes that place is a place of great influence, like a Hitler. Yeah. And sometimes that... Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that place is in our family yeah. among our siblings yeah. or as a parent mm -hmm. or as a co-worker what place has God put you in in that place we can be a leader that's what God has asked us to do sure. and so we lead in place when I was a supervisor many times I'd get really frustrated and there was one lady she'd always say do you still go to that church I say, yeah. And I said, would you like to go with me? But the thing is, so many people, and I didn't go around saying, oh, I go to church, da, 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 da. But when I'd get frustrated, this other uh, supervisor would say, why don't you go in the room and pray about that? But she never went to church, but she knew where I was. Right. And, and in, some, in some respects, that can be manipulative mm -hmm. because people are trying to play you. And, and I don't respond well when people try and play me. Yeah. <laughs> I need to learn what David learned. Yeah, yeah. Because Saul was trying to play him a lot. Um, let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. We're out of time. Um, but this is a very powerful passage of Scripture and something that I think we can learn from, the disqualification of Saul and the promotion of David. Lord, we just thank you for this time together uh, studying your word. And we know that it's so rich and so deep. There's so much more in here yet that we could call out. But we desire to get the, the fuller context and, and we'll push on next week. Um, but Lord, as we ponder this week what you've been teaching us as we read through this passage, 
um, in First Samuel, and as we reread and reread and reread uh, Psalm 37 and see what it is that David had learned and what he's expressing uh, to us as as the foundation of drawing near into into Your will and being a person after Your heart, Lord, affect us in that. Uh, don't let it just be words upon our mind, but let it be um, Your actual touch upon our heart. Um, please reveal Yourself to us. Um, that we might uh, draw near to you. Lord, I don't know what better to say than that. That's that's a desire of my heart. I know it's a desire of the people in here as they are here because they want to draw near to you. And Lord, we thank you for that. Um, we ask that you would act uh, in that way to touch us. Lord, we ask that you protect us and continue to provide for us. And we thank you so much for serving us in the many ways that you do, Lord, that we don't even see or pay attention to. Lord, uh, we ask that as we go from here that you would uh, be with the pastor this morning as he presents your word. And he's presenting from uh, Solomon, who's learned many, many things. And uh, in the end, he learns that your will is is what it's all about. Um, Lord, we just would ask that you would uh, enable Bob to preach effectively, that we would continue to be challenged in your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this and what you're doing in our lives. And we pray in your name. Amen.